Now, Satan loves to take away the freedom that that Scripture uh, talks about, especially the one verse from Psalm 145. And uh, Acts 15 addresses this whole subject, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Hear the Word of God. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray as we make our way, continue to make our way through the book of Acts, that You would be pleased to bless Your Word to our hearts, enable us to grow not only in our understanding, but in our obedience to it. Uh, Take uh, these frail lips and use them, Father, Uh, in our weakness to show forth the power of Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Why does God allow constant division and debate within the church? If you read the last 2,000 years of church history, you will find that it has been a history of debate and division, and discord, and that has troubled a lot of people. It's uh, made them look at some of these uh, church councils and wonder, whoa, what is going on You know, with the church of Jesus Christ? And I think it's very important to realize that the church has never, not even once, been 100% unified on doctrine. Not even in the time of the apostles. Some people have this uh, idolized view of the, uh, the period of the apostles and they say, oh, if we could only get back to the purity of the apostolic age, then everything would be all right in the church. Well, let me tell you something. Those apostles were kind of discouraged about their apostolic age and they recognized it was not perfect and they anticipated a time that's still future to us when the church will be mature and will all see uh, eye to eye on doctrine and they knew it was not in their lifetime. Acts 15 is just a tiny glimpse into the debates that constantly harassed Paul's ministry through to the end of his life. In fact, the apostles predicted that uh, toward the end of their own life, in the last days of the, the Old Covenant, that there would be the great apostasy, a great falling away uh, from the faith. And so, for those of you who are discouraged and think, man, our, our age is the only age in which we have uh, all of this discord and faulty doctrine. It's just not true. And so the question again comes up, why? Why does God allow doctrinal problems? I think if you uh, measure the growth of doctrine from the time of the first century to the present, there has been a constant growth in understanding of various doctrinal issues. And Ephesians 4 says that there's going to be a long period of time in which at least some people were going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but there will be maturing and eventually it'll come to a time where they will be unified in the faith. And I firmly believe that. Isaiah 52 talks about that as well. It says they shall all see eye to eye. 
<laughs> they don't see eye to eye right now. But it's prophesying. There's coming a time when they will be unified in doctrine. But in the meantime, Jude calls us to contend earnestly for the faith. And I think that this passage helps us to approach these church fights in a godly way. Now, before we can look at the chapter as a whole, and I think we're probably going to be taking several weeks to do this. I haven't completely figured it out yet, but it's a pivotal chapter, very important chapter. First of all, before we can do that, we need to give a little bit of background and tie together uh, the book of Galatians, which was written right during these verses, between verses 2 and 4. In fact, if you're interested, um, chapter 15 is 49 A.D., uh, the very last few verses of chapter 11 is 46 A.D., just so you have some markers here. And Galatians 2, uh, there's debate whether it's between verses 2 and 3 or between, I mean, between verses um, yeah, 1 and 2 or between verses 3 and 4. But somewhere, probably between verses 2 and 4, the book of Galatians uh, was written. So we're going to use these five verses as an introduction to the whole chapter and uh, uh, tie Galatians together with this. We're going to ask five questions of the text, and I'm going to spend 95% of our time on the first question, which is, why do we need to deal with the same issues over and over again? You would think, once the Puritans had wrestled through all of these doctrines and they wrote out the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms, man, we could go on to other things. We wouldn't need to deal with that again. And yet, that's not the case. Uh, even in the PCA... It's frustrating that we are re-arguing some of the same things that were settled at the time that the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, was written. And we see the same thing here. The very issues that are being debated in this chapter were already settled four times. Four times. Let's read verses 1 through 2 again. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. You know, when you have been immersed in a doctrine like we have in the Reformed faith, it's very easy to approach people who just don't seem to get it and to be frustrated with them. And what can be so difficult about Calvinism? And it's the, the gospel in its purest form. What can be so difficult about the sovereignty of God, the law of God, and uh, uh, covenant theology and the other doctrines that we, that we really value and just seem so obvious to us? Well, some people, different people, can look at exactly the same facts and come to different conclusions because they have been so steeped in worldview and so steeped in different presuppositions. So what I want to do is try to understand where these guys from Judea were coming from. And just so that you can be clear on how unclear things were back then, James, the leader in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, according to Galatians, James was the one who sent these people to examine uh, Paul and Barnabas. So there was a lot of interesting stuff that was happening back then. I don't think James sent them with exactly this message. In fact, I'm sure he did not send them with exactly this message. Because if you look at the chronology, which, by the way, we've got a chronology in the back table out there, about 25 copies. But you look at the chronology of when James wrote his book and everything. He did know justification by faith alone. 
He spoke of two justifications. One was uh, what receives justification. The other is what evidences justification. He understood that, but I don't think he understood as well as Paul some of the issues that impacted the Gentiles. And uh, he learned from Paul on this. These Jews who had come down from Judea had lived their entire lives following certain laws and ceremonies. We call the ceremonial law. In fact, they were raised to think it was absolutely gross what the Gentiles were engaged in, how they would eat and wash and clothe and plant and engage in hygiene. Uh, it, this was drilled into them. And so we have a cultural issue that made some of the Jews irritated with Paul. Uh, it's much like the debates that went on in the South during the 60s and the 70s over um, interracial marriage. Very emotional debates that were happening. I think there was this kind of tension coming from different cultural understandings uh, in Israel. People got very upset with Paul and thought that Paul was doing something that was unthinkable socially, aesthetically, morally, and culturally. In fact, all the way up into Acts chapter 21, there's false accusations being made to Paul. He's out to destroy the Jewish culture. That's what they're accusing him of. In Acts 21 verse 21, the apostles say, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. And I say it's a false accusation because Paul goes on to, to show it, it, he has no problem with Jews following the ceremonial laws if they want to do that. In effect, he says, you know, go for it. No problems. But uh, in fact, there were health benefits to some of those laws and, and Paul continued to follow some of them. But what Paul absolutely insisted upon was those ceremonial laws could not be imposed as a condition for fellowship. And so there were different cultural issues. And he said, you can value the different cultures, but don't use those cultural differences to divide the body of Christ. Both can be valued, but you need to get over those in terms of trying to make sure that there was one church. A second issue that was driving these debates was political. This conference, as I mentioned, took place in 49 A.D., same year that the book of Galatians was written. There's debate on that, but I can prove without any shadow of a doubt. It was written in 49 A.D. Uh, and uh, you can look on the table for some of the arguments and I can give you more if you're interested. But this was the year that was the height of zealot activity against compromising Jews. It started in 46 A.D., ended in 52 A.D., but it really started increasing and was at the height of uh, their activity in 49. Now, what was happening is that these Jewish zealots were lynching any Jew that uh, they thought was compromised. He was fraternizing with Gentiles, eating with Gentiles. If he didn't circumcise his children, if he didn't follow all of the ceremonial laws to a T. And what these zealots were doing, they took the Maccabees as their heroes because the Maccabees had killed fellow Jews who had compromised back in the 200s B.C. Now, you've got to realize all the Jews... Even the Christian Jews, all the Jews saw the Maccabees as being their heroes. And if you read the stories of the Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, it's just remarkable the things that they did. Uh, they fought against Antiochus Epiphanes. It kept Israel from being annihilated off the face of the map. There were massive armies that he sent with elephants, all kinds of war machines. And God gave them victory after victory because of their faith in him. But 
They did take out some of their fellow Israelites if they saw them compromising in any way. And so in the eyes of many of the Jews, they have, these zealots have the high moral ground. They're identifying uh, with the Maccabees. Now, what's going on in the church at exactly this time? Well, you've got Christian Jews who appear to be compromising by fellowshipping with Gentiles, eating and perhaps eating non-kosher food with Gentiles. And with this zealot scare, Jews like James have a natural tendency to take a conservative drift. And that's where they're most comfortable anyway. But it's, it's just one more reason to back off from fellowship with Gentiles. So that's the political climate. Many of these Jews are running scared. They know that Gentiles are coming into the church and they think, man, just for the sake of the Gentiles and us, we ought not to eat together. And uh, many commentators believe that because of this, this um, uh, zealot activity, they were trying to work out some kind of a compromise where they would talk Gentiles at least into getting circumcised because that's the thing that zealots were primarily looking for and uh, they were saying it could alleviate the persecution. Other ceremonial laws could be optional or others thought could be later learned. Look at point C. There were some people who took that position one step further. These guys were actually requiring circumcision before they would treat Gentiles as Christians. Uh, this was not saying, hey, if you guys value us, uh, you'd get circumcised. And if you don't want to, let's at least eat separately because it'll be for your safety. It'll be for our safety. No, they were going beyond that and say, we're not even going to treat you as Christians if you don't get circumcised. And um, this is 100% parallel when they said you, you're not justified. It's 100% parallel to what's going on even here in Omaha, but you'll find it all over America where there are certain sects of Christians who say you can't be saved unless you get baptized. Now, you can understand why they would jump to that conclusion because the Bible does not make baptism an option, does it? You can't be a member of the church without getting baptized. It's baptism that ushers you into the body. And so their conclusion is if this sign of the covenant is necessary to come into the church, it's necessary to be treated as a Christian, which means it's necessary to be justified. But that's a wrong conclusion. Uh, we do not believe that baptism saves you any more than circumcision did. There's a parallel there. In fact, in Galatians, Paul argues, when did Abraham get justified? Was it before he was circumcised or after? Well, everybody knows it was before he was circumcised. Ergo, circumcision is not needed for justification. It's a pretty clear argument that Paul makes in Galatians. So that's the second group. There was a third group that went even further these were Pharisees who had been converted to Christ. And the idea of doing away with the ceremonial law was absolutely revolting to them. And when they find out that, uh, that Peter is actually eating the food of the Gentiles, they think he has just totally compromised uh, the faith. In verse 5, it says at the end, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this was not a conflict over the moral law. Uh, there wasn't any conflict over the moral law back then. This was saying that the Mosaic laws regarding the priesthood, cleanliness issues, all of those things, the Mosaic ceremonial laws had to be imposed. Now, later in this chapter, Peter is going to point out nobody could even keep the ceremonial laws. It was impossible. If a fly lighted on you, you became ceremonially unclean. 
you could accidentally become unclean by stepping on the wrong thing. If somebody had spat on the ground and you didn't know about it, you stepped on it. You're ceremonially unclean if you sit on the wrong thing. In fact, God had surrounded them with so many ceremonial laws of uncleanness that everybody knew every man, woman, child is unclean and in need of the cleansing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was a teaching tool that God gave uh, to teach them about the the need of the grace of the the coming Messiah. And uh, all of the ceremonial laws were designed to do that. The moral law could not. That's one of the misinterpretations people give of Galatians. They think Paul's doing away with the whole Old Testament. No, he's talking over and over about ceremonial law. Moral law does not teach people a thing about Christ. It doesn't teach them how to get saved. It's the ceremonial law that teaches people how to get saved. It teaches them all kinds of picture lessons of the coming Messiah, his sacrifice, and of how they would get justified. But even there, neither the ceremonial nor the moral law could save us. It's simply pointing to what did. A fifth issue that plagued the church was the question of whether ceremonial laws are still binding on Jews or something that's optional and perhaps good. Now, Peter sometimes followed the ceremonial laws, sometimes did not. Paul sometimes followed them, sometimes did not. And so both of them treated it as optional. You can follow it, but it's not binding upon the Jews. The sixth issue was whether the ceremonial law was binding on the Gentiles. Now, even in pre-Christian Uh, times, Jews had debates on this. There were some who said, oh no, the ceremonial laws are only binding on Jews. They're not binding on Gentiles. And you can be saved as a Gentile and not follow those. If you want to be a full Jew, yeah, you can do that too. And there were others who said, no, you have to um, follow all of the ceremonial laws. In fact, that was one of the debates between Hillel and and Shammai. Uh, There are schools of thought. But... um, The uh, book of Hebrews was later written to convince people that the ceremonial laws are not binding on anyone, Jew or Gentile. And if you make them binding on anyone, what you're in effect saying is Christ has not come because these ceremonial laws, some of them uh, were only to be followed up until the time that Messiah came. So that was one issue. The seventh issue that's addressed in Galatians is showing the implications of requiring circumcision. If you say this is a mandate, not just an option, then what you were saying is the Old Testament continues to apply circumcisions and initiatory right, and it's initiating you into keeping the whole ceremonial law. You can't just keep part of it like some of them were trying to do. Uh, Paul said, if you're mandating it, you've got to mandate the whole ceremonial law. That's what it's ushering you into. And by the way, Jews did know the difference between ceremonial law and non-ceremonial law. There are many anti-theonomists who say, no, it's ditching the whole thing. They didn't know the difference. It's all intermingled. No, they clearly knew. And it's all the way through the Old Testament, this distinction. I'll just give you one example from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7.19 says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So for Paul, keeping the commandments of God is important. Circumcision, yeah, you can take it, you can leave it. So if if there was no distinction between ceremonial laws like circumcision and moral laws, that would not make a lick of sense at all. Let me read it again. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. 
So if, if there's no difference between ceremonial and moral laws, you could just put the word commandments in place of circumcision. What he would be saying is keeping the commandments of God is nothing. Not keeping the commandments of God is nothing. What really matters is keeping the commandments of God. Okay, can you see? It's just ludicrous. And yet that's the position that many people take on that. What the real debate was over in Acts, in Galatians, in Colossians, in Hebrews was not the moral law. What the debate was over was a ceremonial law of God. As Hebrews 7.12 says, for the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. So the same book that says moral law can never change in any detail says that the ceremonial law has to change. That's where the debate really lies. Now, we're not justified by either ceremonial or moral, but it's a ceremonial debate. The last issue that was raised in this debate is whether Jews and Gentiles should continue to be separate. Uh, there were some people who said, yeah, let's not circumcise the Gentiles, but at least let's keep them separate. And what Paul was saying is God has bound us into one body and we better fellowship as one body uh, or we're going to be in trouble. According to the chronology in Galatians, Paul had brought a test case to Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. He met with them privately and it would be about the time well, it would be exactly the time of the last few verses of chapter 11. And they had talked through this issue. And it says that Titus was not forced to be circumcised. They came to an agreement and uh, Paul was out of there. But this issue was also settled years before. In fact, it was settled uh, 11 years before Acts 15. God gave in chapter 10, God gave Peter a vision of the unclean animals, told Peter to eat. Peter refused to eat those unclean animals three times and three times God commanded him what God has cleansed you must not call common. So from that time on Peter starts fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He'll eat with them. He has no problems with doing that. And so God in Acts 10 settles every issue I've just brought up that comes up in Acts 15 and Galatians. But in chapter 11 Peter's called on the carpet for eating with the Gentiles. Peter has to settle the question a second time. And most commentators agree this probably alienated quite a number of the Jews at that time that explains why Peter, who was always in the front, now takes a second uh, seat to James. James is now the leader of the church there. And it must have hurt Peter because here he is trying to follow God and to be faithful. And uh, yet um, he's getting in trouble with a lot of people. People have a distaste for that. And let me tell you something. Leaders, even when they don't want to, have antennas that are out there trying to figure out what things do I avoid to keep out of trouble? <laughs> they do. Uh, it's just out there. And this is one of the main reasons why many times issues are not definitively dealt with until a huge crisis comes up like happens in Acts chapter 15. Now, why don't you turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 and uh, we're going to take a look at Paul's perspective on what was happening in the chapters that are leading up to this. Acts chapter 2, and let's begin reading at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Uh, this was 14 years after his conversion, and it's a reference to the last few verses of Acts chapter 11. That was in 46 A.D. And... Um, Going on to verse 2, I went up by revelation. Now, Acts records the revelation. Agabus had given a revelation from God. There was going to be this huge famine and he needed to go up to Jerusalem. Goes on to say, and communicated to them that gospel which I preached 
among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So this verses 1 through 10 is a reference to a private meeting in chapter 11, not the public meeting in chapter 15. And almost most conservative scholars uh, hold to this. Calvin, very clear on that, but most modern conservative scholars uh, hold to that. It makes too many problems to say it was Acts 15 meeting. So what's going on about the time of Acts 11 is that Paul is deeply concerned that James, Peter, and John are not taking the kind of stands that are needed to keep the gospel pure. And what he's been doing among the Gentiles could be completely undone. Even leaders can fail to take the stands that they should. Okay, verse 3 of Galatians 2. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So clearly James, Peter, and John recognize the truth of what Paul is saying. Uh, They don't require Titus to be circumcised. Paul brought Titus to force the issue. Okay, something's got to be done. Something's got to be decided right now on this question. And so they end up agreeing with him. But one of the things you'll find is just because leaders agree with you in one venue does not mean they will uh, stand behind you and vigorously defend you in another. And I think that Peter and Paul are kind of left out to hang, to, 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 to be in trouble, to face the heat on their own in some of the later uh, confrontations. But here in private, they agree. Verse 4, And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Paul sees this as such a serious issue. He refuses to call the third group of Judaizers Christians. He says they're false believers. Now, the interesting thing about that is no discipline has come against those people. That was back in chapter 11. Here these same false believers in chapter 15 are bringing havoc into the church. And to me, it spells out the, the problem, the difficulty with dealing with issues within the church. You can't always discipline. We'll see some of the ambiguities of what probably made it difficult for James and Peter to bring the discipline that needed to be brought. Okay, verse Five, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. He is saying that he has direct authority from God. He does not need the endorsement of the Jerusalem three. Now, they did endorse him, but he doesn't need that. He has direct revelation from God as an apostle to the Gentiles. Verse seven. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcision had been committed to me as the gospel of the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles, and they circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Because he had, that's what he was involved in bringing there, was all of this famine relief uh, for them. And so in Acts chapter 11, the last few verses the issues were settled as far as Paul was concerned. Probably went into the meeting with a little bit of anxiety about what the outcome would be, and he left exhilarated because, okay, this is behind us. 
In fact, in Galatians 2.12, it indicates that during the time of Acts 14, verses 27 through 28, those are the last two verses of chapter 14 that happened right before Acts 15. During that time, Peter came to visit Paul in Antioch and Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was violating the ceremonial laws. He was in total agreement with Paul. He had no problems whatsoever with what Paul was doing. And yet, when these Jews come from Judea in Acts 15.1, the old controversy erupts again. Take a look at Galatians 2.11 and following. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Notice that James sent the people who were causing the trouble in Acts 15, verse 1. I find that remarkable. James already knows what the issues are in verses 1 through 10. That was just three years before. Peter, James, John, and Paul had all come to this agreement in this private meeting together. And so why is he sending these troublemakers to investigate what's happening with Paul and Barnabas? Well, we're not told, but when you look at the, at the um, uh, way in which Paul's kind of testy <laughs> with uh, Peter and James, it's obviously a leadership defect. <coughs> <coughs> Either James doesn't have the guts to discipline these guys or he, he thinks Paul's making a mountain out of a molehill, but either explanation is not good. And all down through history, a majority of the good guys, a majority of the orthodox people have not had the stomach to fight. It's just been true all throughout church history. And I'll give you an example during the Trinitarian debates. It was so discouraging to Athanasius to have the... The people in the middle who were good people, they were orthodox people, just not willing to take a stand. The, the, the story relates to the issue of is the Son of God of the same essence as the Father? And the orthodox said yes, and they used the Greek word homoousion. Okay, it means he's of an identical essence, the same essence with the Father. They both are fully God. Well, when the, the sheet was being sent around for the delegates to sign their agreement with this, a heretic inserted the little Greek letter iota. It's like an I. And so instead of it saying homoousion, it says homoousion. Instead of saying of identical essence, it says of like essence. And the Orthodox people, they were nice guys. They were thinking, well, you know, the father isn't the son. And so, why can't we say it's of like essence? There are some differences between the two. And so, uh, there was this big hole, uh, you know, barn door that you could drive a truck through. And the heretics took advantage of it until the Orthodox closed that loophole for them. Now, here's the frustrating thing. In every era, the majority of the good guys, nice guys who don't have a stomach for fight, they, under, they don't understand what is at stake and they cause trouble for people like Paul and Athanasius who clearly see the implications of these decisions and they treat the Athanasiuses of this world as not being loving. Their attitude is, why do we always have to fight? Why can't we just love one another? And why can't we just get along with one another? That's their attitude back then. That, was their, that is their attitude uh, today. And so you just have to face up to the fact you will not be popular if you are a reformer. Truth hurts. 
Now, I'll grant you that Peter, James, and John later on all become very bold, uncompromising fighters for the truth, but I think Paul had something to do with that. But at this stage, there's just too much political pressure, social pressure, cultural pressure, peer pressure. And verses 13 and following talk about that. Let's just, I'm not going to read all the way through verse 21, but that's where Paul's speech to Peter ends. Uh, Verse 13, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are, uh, are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Those are strong words, but they were needed words of reformation. And so obviously, James was not dealing with the issues in Jerusalem. Acts 15.1 is as bold a contradiction of the agreement that James, Peter, Paul and John had, had come to, as you can get. It's just a total contradiction. And I have been burned by leaders before that when they're talking with you over here, they agree with you 100%. You get to another meeting, they say something totally different. You're just blindsided. You wonder, what is going on here? You've betrayed me. Now, I don't think they've intended to betray you or to lie. It's just their, their whole mind is preoccupied with something else that's going on in that situation. But I think that's what happened uh, to Paul here. Uh, we are all subject to error, must constantly reform our words and our actions to the Scriptures. Uh, we, we need to be aware there is no such thing as an infallible leader. Now, they were infallible when they wrote the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit moved them and kept them from error. But in and of themselves, uh, they were not. And if it could happen to Peter and Barnabas, it can certainly happen to us. And so when Acts 15, in fact, let's go back to Acts 15. When Acts 15 verse 2 says that there was no small dissension, Luke wasn't kidding. It was an all-out fight and it didn't get settled. And finally, they can't come to any conclusion. They say, we've got to go to Jerusalem. We've got to get more input on this and we've got to come to some kind of a decision. And before we look at the four points and just quickly breeze through them, now let me draw some applications we can learn about church fights. First, They are unavoidable if the work of God's grace uh, is present. 1 Corinthians 11.19 says, For there must also be divisions among you. He said must. It's unavoidable. Uh, Any place where both error and the life-giving power of God is present, there will be conflicts. Satan will make sure of it, and we need to make sure of it as well. Because Jude 3 says, contend. That means fight. Contend earnestly for the faith. Peace is not always a sign of health. Graveyards are very peaceful places. (laughs) They don't have a lot of life in them either. And so, uh, peace is not always a sign of health. Don't think of a conflict as a reason to leave a denomination. In fact, I worry the most when I see denominations out there who have no conflict whatsoever over gross uh, accommodations to error. That's where I worry. That's where I say you need to leave. That's a danger signal. So conflict is unavoidable when there is error. The second thing that I learned from these passages that we've read is that God allows division for a purpose. 
Now, there may be other purposes, but 1 Corinthians 11.19 lays out one very well. It says, For there must also be divisions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. God uses these things to raise up leaders who will help to define uh, doctrine. And you might think about it this way. If it had not been for the fact that the heretic Arius was contradicting doctrines that were already believed and held to, if it wasn't for him, the church would not have been forced to go into the nitty-gritty of defining what the doctrine of Christ was and what it was not. And if it hadn't been for other heretics challenging other doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity and so many other doctrines would never have been developed. In fact, you can, you can show me if this is wrong, but from my study of church history, every formulation of doctrine has arisen out of controversy. Every one has arisen out of controversy. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing. The heresy is a bad thing, but the struggle against it is not. The third principle I learn is that there are some issues worth fighting over and some issues that are not worth fighting over. In Acts 21, Paul did not consider it worthwhile to fight over whether Jews, you know, continued to follow the ceremonial uh, laws, you know, for health benefits. He just said, don't make it a mandate. And there are issues that we might have disagreements on that don't, uh, are not of the magnitude of the issue in Acts 15 and which we don't need to separate over. And I've put into your backside of your bulletins those circles of belief. I think those are trying to be sensitive to this issue. Uh, point number three there, which carefully weighs out the degree to which we should fight, separate, or ignore some of the different issues. See, if you fight tooth and nail over every single issue that is out there, you don't have the biblical balance. There is right and wrong, and you can hold to it personally, but not all issues are battles that we need to choose. Fourth application, some people will not be convinced by any amount of evidence. That seems to be true of the people in verse 1. Uh, definitely is true of the people in verse 5. Uh, some of these guys troubled Paul through the end of his life. And in Galatians, Paul questions whether these people are even believers. He calls them false believers. Interestingly, James must have treated them as believers. They're still in the church uh, from Jerusalem. And so not everybody sees uh, these issues clearly. But I think to me this shows that false believers will probably be in the church until the time of the second coming. That was Christ's parable of the wheat and the tares. There's always going to be some tares mixed in with God's people. Fifth, we shouldn't wait till everyone agrees before we take action. Now, I think this is a most important uh, uh, point. When fundamental issues like creationism are being denied, I don't think it's our position to just roll over to cry uncle and to stop fighting. That's the way many Presbyteries in the PCA, once they made that decision, you know, you can have any of these views on creation. They just say, oh, well, we can't fight about it anymore. And I said, no way, Jose, you're going to fight. You're, this is something that we must do. Calvin and most conservative scholars today, as I've mentioned, believe that Galatians was written during this controversy, either in verses one through two or possibly while they were traveling between verses 3 and 5, somewhere in verses 2 through 4, he heard that these same Judaizers had gone to his churches in Galatia that he had planted. They're spreading the, 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 the nuisance over there, and Galatian churches are falling away. And so he says, I've got to take action. Now, keep this in mind. Nothing had been settled by the church in Antioch. 
nothing had been settled by the church in Judea. But that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't know the truth. He's convinced of the truth and he takes the needed action to defend those who are under his jurisdiction. In Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He knows action needs to be taken. And there are times where we have to take action, even though the rest of the church of Jesus Christ is not in agreement on these issues. Even if in our denomination, our church has taken stances uh, that the denomination as a whole has not. For example, you cannot be a ruling elder in this church if you don't hold to six-day creationism. Now, there are good brothers in the Lord that I know who disagree with me on that. But within this, within this congregation, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? We understand the enormously significant consequences that flow from that. Now, a person could be a member and not agree with those things. But we see how this in, uh, impacts uh, the, the integrity of Christ's words, the doctrine of salvation. There's many things that flow from this a lot of people are blind to. Sixth, some people like James and Peter avoid fights and others like Paul will not allow critical issues to just slide. And so if you're a Peter or a James, don't get frustrated with the reformers like Paul. And if you're a Paul who's a real reformer out there, don't just write off the church. Be like Paul and work with the church. Try to reform the church. Seventh, there does eventually come a time when church discipline needs to be exercised. This can be a discipline in reverse where you secede from the church or it can be a discipline imposed where you eventually excommunicate people uh, from the church. And when you read the books of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st through 3rd John, you see those apostles did indeed engage in church discipline. But they're complicating factors. It's harder than you think. <laughs> what happened when each of these four, uh, now it's going to be five, conflicts had come up the Judaizers realize they're losing, so they back off. And they say, oh yeah, we could live with that decision, you know. And then they don't say anything. They wait for the dust to settle and they're back there irritating everybody again with their problems. And so from one perspective, it may have been very difficult for Peter, James, and John to discipline these guys. I think of the story of Alexandre Dumas, who was a French novelist, uh, and he got into a fiery debate. I got this from Moody Monthly's daily uh, devotional, but he got into a fiery debate with a young uh, politician and they said so many uh, offensive words to each other that both of them felt like they had to engage in a duel to defend their honor. That's what they did back then. Honor was really big for them. The problem was both of them were such good shots with the pistol, they knew they would both die if they got into a duel. So they had a little discussion. They said, why don't we just draw, uh, draw straws? It was, uh, they called it lots. Why don't we just cast lots? And whoever loses the lot will just shoot himself. And then one of us at least can live. And they both thought, you know, that's a pretty good idea. So they cast lots and Dumas lost. So he took his pistol and went into an adjoining room and with a great deal of dignity, closed the doors, sat down. And the rest of the company was waiting in suspense. As soon as they heard the shot, his friends rushed to the door, opened it up. And there sat Dumas with a smoking pistol. And he said, Gentlemen, a most regrettable thing has happened. I missed. <laughs> uh, well, that's what's happening with these guys here. They weren't playing fair. You know, time after time, they lost the battle 
<laughs> and they're not, they're not uh, repenting of their sin, nor are they shooting themselves. They're not leaving. Instead, they're over and over getting themselves into trouble. And uh, eventually, church discipline had to be exercised against them. Churches that do not believe in church discipline eventually find themselves worn out with the conflict and have far more collateral damage than they would have had if they had followed the biblical injunction to go ahead and do the hard thing. Eighth, if you really care, you will eventually face conflict. Ninth, what you are willing to fight over is what you value as vital. We've got to pick our battles. Can't fight over everything, so what you are willing to fight over shows what you value the most. And there's a lot of people, they value peace at all expenses, you know, whether it's holiness or whatever is at risk. Tenth, it is sometimes our duty to fight even when we are tired and wish the issue would just go away. I am convinced Peter and James just wish this would go away. It's been plaguing them, dogging their steps. But they finally realize, okay, we've got to do something, and so... They do the bold thing and they take a stand on Paul's behalf and they defend the gospel. They are totally committed now because this is not a private meeting. This is a public meeting. They're, they're totally committed. Second Timothy 4.2 commands preachers to convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And he goes on to describe what's true of so many American churches that people only want to listen to, not the tough sermons. They only want to listen to what's pleasant, what they will come away feeling so good about. Oh, wasn't that a great sermon? I just feel so good. And uh, if you wish controversy would go away, realize sometimes it is your duty. It is your duty to fight. You don't have a choice. Eleventh, pray for your leaders during stressful times. Uh, pray that we would not give in like Peter and Barnabas did. See, it's my nature to avoid fights. I hate it. I, in Presbyterian General Assembly, I, I'm sometimes physically trembling when I'm up in front of that microphone arguing with these people and trying to address the biblical principles that are involved because I hate conflict. And so I have to resist the Peter syndrome. Now, I think for the most part, I've been successful in doing that. But you guys need to pray for us. Pray that we would not compromise, that we would stand bold for the Lord, not avoid the God-mandated fights. Twelfth, consult with fellow leaders when the going gets tough. For me, that would be consulting with some of my peers. For you, it might be consulting with some other fathers or some other mothers. But challenging each other to be faithful to Christ. Thirteenth, ask God to providentially intervene, much like God raised up James and Peter to speak just the right words at just the right time. And let me quickly mention four benefits uh, to controversies. The first was already hinted at. They force the church to clarify doctrines. Uh, I get really irritated when new heresies emerge, like the emergent church or the openness of God theology. But you know what? If they did not emerge, we would not be forced to do the clarifying of doctrine that, that, that comes out of these things inevitably. A second benefit is it helps to expose the tares within the church. These guys are clever. It isn't for quite some time that they get excommunicated or forced to leave. And John talks about that in his first epistle. He says they went out that it might be made manifest that they were never of us in the first place. And if it hadn't been for the controversy, they would not have been exposed. It reminds me of um, the court trial. It was a murder trial that took place in Oklahoma. Uh, they did not have a body. It was all being judged on circumstantial evidence, which I've got some 
difficulties with, but the reasoning of the jury I found very fascinating. At the end of his arguments, the defense lawyer uh, used a trick. He said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for all of you. He looked at his watch and he said, within one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk into this courtroom. Well, the jurors were rather surprised and they're all looking at the door. And when the minute goes by, he says, actually, I made up the previous statement, but you all looked on with anticipation. I therefore put it to you that there is reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was killed and insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. Well, the jury deliberated and within a few minutes they came back with a guilty uh, verdict and the lawyer says, but how? You must have had some doubt. I watched you all look at the door. And the jury foreman said, oh, we did look, but your client didn't. See, the the jury (laughs) uh, recognized this guy had been tricked. In fact, this guy had overstepped themselves. That's what's happened here. These guys had overstepped themselves and they were so bold thinking they could win the day. They laid all of the cards out on the deck. And that's what many times happens to heretics and they they get shown. So there is a benefit that comes from this. Acts 15 verse 3 shows another benefit. It sometimes opens up opportunities for ministry that would not otherwise be there. Verse 3 says, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Now, probably they would not have made that trip if it hadn't been for this controversy. And then finally, it creates interdependent relationships. Uh, The chapter as a whole shows that they needed each other. Peter and John and James need Paul, and Paul needs Peter, John, and James. Even when we're criticized, we need each other. Uh, Dr. Mitchell preached a sermon one time, and after the sermon, uh, a member of the congregation came up and was criticizing him about a couple of things that he stood for, but also criticizing him over his sermon. And instead of defending himself, he looked at the woman and he said, if what you say is true, would you mind praying for me? And I thought, wow, what a great response. He took her from being a critic to being an advocate, being a fellow worker together. Uh, We obviously don't have time uh, to go through the other points, but I think that they are obvious. Why do we need a general assembly? Because there's wisdom in many counselors. Why is it important not to become bitter over disagreements? Romans 8.28. God intends that conflict for your good. He's going to bring good out of it. He brought good out of it in verse 3. He brings good out of it in the rest of this chapter. In fact, chapter 15 is the watershed chapter of this whole book. It has brought comfort. It has brought encouragement to people, millions of Christians down through history. And if it hadn't been for this controversy, you wouldn't have that in this book. You wouldn't have the encouragement that flowed from that. So God will bring good. And it keeps us from being frustrated and and upset and bitter, both before and during and after. Verse 4 raises another issue. Uh, We know tensions are hot. We know that Peter's, I mean, Paul is frustrated with James. But look at verse 4. It says, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. Okay, they're welcome. They're received. And they reported all things that God had done with them. How did they avoid writing each other off? Well, I think they did it by being committed to each other first, resolving their differences second. They were attacking the problem, not attacking each other. And I think this is one of the issues that gets people unable to get 
resolved with each other in marriages and churches elsewhere is they're attacking each other. They feel like they personally are the enemy. They are the ones who are being attacked. I think of the two battleships that um, met in the middle of the night and they were pounding each other with their cannons. A uh, number of people were killed, uh, sh- ships damaged. And when dawn came, they were shocked to realize both of these ships were carrying the British flag. They were friends who were shooting at each other. And that's what many couples do with each other. They don't realize they're on the same team. There was this one couple that was so bitter and angry with each other. Uh, they had a hard time uh, even speaking. Uh, the woman, they didn't believe in divorce, but the woman came up to the man uh, at one point and says, Honey, let's pray to the Lord that he would take one of us home to heaven. And then I'll go live with my mother. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the Scripture calls us to be committed to each other, then work out the differences. And if we can embrace all whom Christ embraces in the church of Jesus Christ, why? Because Christ loves them. He welcomes them into our, His family. We need to welcome them as well. And then being secure in our relationship to each other, we can challenge each, each other. We can see the importance of iron, sharpening iron, of bringing reform without feeling we're going to just be written off. Now, obviously, there was a minimum line beyond which Paul was not willing to go. When that third group of Judaizers went beyond that line, he said, you are not a brother. I am not going to fellowship with you at all. And so we need to have that minimum line on our chart on the back. It's the inner circle. People who don't believe that inner line. God knows if they really are regenerate or not. I will not treat them as regenerate. They are false believers if they deny the doctrines of that middle line. Last question. How can believers have such radically different views as are expressed in verses 1 through 5? Now, certainly there were some false believers, but not all of them were false believers. I think part of the problem is that we have this tendency to look at the issues just from our own perspective rather than trying to say, okay, now why would they be thinking that way? See, Peter, I mean, Paul was working among the Gentiles and there were issues and questions that came up that the Jews were not even thinking about in Jerusalem. And so I think this was this was the issue that came up. Uh, I, I facetiously read a, a, a statement, how you can tell the difference between the sexes uh, when a couple has to go somewhere. The first thing that comes into the wife's mind is, uh, what shall I wear? And the first thing that comes into the husband's mind is, how can I, how can I get out of this? And uh, that's maybe an overblown statement of differences. But there are different perspectives. Husbands and wives bring a a pastor from a small church like ours is going to bring different things to the table than a pastor from a large church. Right. I think that's what's going on between Paul and James. They are not in opposition. They agree with the same gospel, but they have different emphases in their books. Their books beautifully dovetail together. Another explanation is that we all need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I think this is so critical. I have talked to people who seem to be absolutely blinded in the counseling. You can so clearly give any number of illustrations of how they violated God's word. They just don't see it. You can show them how they did it just five minutes before. Walk them through it. It's like there's a veil on their mind. And this is where prayer for the Holy Spirit's illumining is so, so important Um, in our own denomination. uh, There are godly men whom I embrace in the Lord but they hold to bad theology. And I've argued with them over their faulty views of creation, uh, women in ministry, children segregated worship, sending kids to government schools, counseling, uh, many other issues. And 
I will continue to seek to bring reform to them, but I think one of the critical things we need to be engaged in is praying, consistently praying, Lord, our words will fall to the ground. They're not going to impact that person at all because of their presuppositions unless your Holy Spirit takes the word and seals it to their hearts. And so we need to be in prayer that God would open all of our minds because we have blind spots too. Open up all of our minds to see things as He sees them, to have His priorities, to hate the things He hates, to love the things that He loves. And uh, it's my desire we would lovingly model as a church the principles of Acts chapter 15. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and the, the mistakes as well as the triumphs of uh, people of ages past that we can learn from. And I pray that as in these next weeks we go through Acts chapter 15, uh, the issues and the personalities and the, the, the truths that come from this would grip our hearts and make us a strong church. And I pray that You would be honored and that You would be glorified in the ways in which we respond. It is our desire, Father, not to go to the right or to the left of Your Word, but we find ourselves so often going off into imbalance. And I pray that the balance that comes from Your Word would be true of this congregation for all of its life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.